John Carpenter's The Thing is one of the greatest horror films of all time, becoming a cult classic after its initial release in 1982. Let's break down this horror masterpiece. Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Raiders of the Lost Podcast, the ultimate film and TV podcast. And baby, we're doing the thing today. Finally. One of my favorite movies of all time. It's definitely one of my most watched films as well because it's a film that the more times you watch it, the better it gets. And that's a testament to the filmmaking, to the prosthetics, special effects, and the story. There's really nothing like it, and there have been so many imitators. It really inspired a lot of your favorite filmmakers. Most notably, Reservoir Dogs was inspired by The Thing. And you, when you think about that, you're like, oh, shit, it totally is like The Thing in a way. Well, and also the references to The Hateful Eight with it using a lot of the unused film music composed by Ennio Morricone for The Hateful Eight. Now, The Thing came out in 1982. It was directed by John Carpenter, written by Bill Lancaster and John W. Campbell Jr. It follows a research team in Antarctica is hunted by a shape-shifting alien that assumes the appearance of its victims. IMDb, this is an 8.2 with over 400,000 ratings, putting it, num- it, putting it at number 153 on the all-time IMDb user rating list. Oh, yeah. Which I think it should be like top 50, but we'll, you know, we'll talk about that. <laughs> Ron Tomatoes, it is a an 84% critic score, 92% audience score on a budget of $15 million. This disappointed at the box office when it was released in 1982 with only $20 million. It had no awards recognition in sight. Ennio Morricone was also nominated for a Razzie for the worst original score. Ironically, he won an Oscar for The Hateful Eight using a lot of the same music that he composed to this film that was not used in the actual movie. This film stars Kurt Russell as R.J. McCready, a helicopter pilot. A. Whitford Brimley as Blair, the senior biologist of the research center. T.K. Carter as Knowles the cook. David Clennon as Palmer, the assistant mechanic. Keith David as Childs, the chief mechanic. Richard Dysart as Dr. Cooper, the physician. Charles Hallahan as Norris, the geologist. Peter Maloney as George Bennings, the meteorologist. Richard Mazur as Clark, the dog handler. Joel Pulse as Fuchs, the assistant biologist. Donald Moffat as Gary, the station commander, and Thomas Waltz as Windows, the radio operator. And it has a 4.3 rating on Letterboxd, which is excellent. And its most common rating is a 5-star rating, which it deserves. It also has some really cool options for posters on Letterboxd as well. Did you give it a 5-star rating on Letterboxd? (laughs) If I gave it an 8-star rating, I'd give it an 8 out of 5. Why don't you you read your review? Oh, my review. Yeah, Yeah, read your Letterboxd review. So Anthony runs the Letterboxd for the Raiders account, Raiders Lost Pod. And then mine is James Potter underscore if you want to follow us. <clears throat> I just did a simple one because of this episode. So I wrote perfection with the uh, Italian gesture. The Thing stands as one of the greatest horror films of all time. And it always blows my mind to see just how insanely good this movie is. Full review next week. Pretty simple. Oh, yeah. I'll read mine, which I also gave it's probably, five. It's probably 16 minute long. Five review. out of five. The Thing is the ultimate genre mashing masterpiece. It's a horror, sci fi, whodunit, alien movie that would turn Airbud into a therapy animal. John Carpenter is a master of suspense and expertly crafts a story that leaves the audience on the edge of their seat until credits roll. The body horror of the 1980s has a special quality of surrealism and campiness that is more effective for storytelling than any CGI you'll see today. 
Ennio Morricone's ominous score builds gradual tension until the finale of fire. Kurt Russell is a beard and hair god in this film. And I've seen it twice this year. And Me too. I saw it twice last year. It's one of my most rewatched movies, like you I said You saw it earlier. twice the year before. Yeah, prob- <laughs> probably. It's just one of those things where, for me, it's, it is a comfort movie. Ironically, sometimes the most crazy, gruesome movies I find to be just comforting. Not in the way that it seems, but in terms of uh, when I watch this film, it really is a perfect exercise of filmmaking in every regard from the editing to the anamorphic widescreen cinematography to John Carpenter's direction to the acting uh, and the writing. It's a really incredible film on every front of production. And that's why I find this film so rewatchable. And it's got obviously famous special effects, but also a lot of great visual effects as well. And still the use of incredible matte paintings. I always love the old school filmmaking. I love the Antarctic setting, although they actually filmed this in Alaska so that they could actually have a production nearby. In British Columbia. Yeah, and f- yeah, for people to, for the crew and cast to stay nearby. Um, but when I watch this movie, I always take away new things from it. And every time I see like a camera movement, I'm like, what a f- genius fucking camera move. <laughs> <laughs> Just the way that uh, Carpenter... Uh, carried out this entire production uh, from from full stop, from start to finish. Uh, this movie is a perfect piece of filmmaking, and that's why I find it so rewatchable because there's so many movies, and only a handful of them are executed as well as they can be. And this is a movie where a- every choice made by the team and by the director, John Carpenter, is the best choice for the film. And so when you see this, it, it's re- that's what I mean by it being a perfect movie, like from start to finish. Nothing about this does not work, and it's just incredible. The thing is movie magic. I love so many elements of this film from the production, the special effects makeup, the prosthetic effects, practical effects, the matte paintings, which I can't wait to talk about, the music, editing. Everything is perfect. It's a, it's a perfect film. However, it was initially a huge failure. So John Carpenter famously takes his movie failures pretty hard, and the film's initial negative response Disappointed him at the, disappointed him the most with this movie, and not only was it a box office bomb, but critics pa- critics panned its gory effects, tone, and characters. I think it was just way ahead of its time when it came out. I have some excerpts from critics. Let me finish what I'm oh, saying. Oh, sorry. <laughs> Vincent can be called a too phony looking to be disgusting. It qualifies only as instant junk. Dave Care wrote it that it was hard to tell who's being attacked and hard to care. Likewise, Roger Ebert, who Roger Ebert was disappointed by superficial characterizations and implausible behavior and dismissed the film as nothing more than an alien knockoff. Carpenter was particularly upset with Christian Nyby, the director of the original Thing from Another World, which came out in 1951, publicly denounced Carpenter's version, saying, if you want blood, go to the slaughterhouse. All in all, it's a terrific commercial for J&B Scotch. In response to the commercial bombing of the film, the studio canceled the multi-picture deal they had with Carpenter, who noted that his career would have been to a, off to a different start after this had the film been successful because he had just done Halloween in 1978. He also did Escape from New York and a couple other movies, and they're like, oh, he's a new young, hot, young director. Let's get him so for a picture deal. Then they canceled that after this movie. Not surprisingly, he was extremely relieved when the film enjoyed a rich cult success following its home video release along with the critical reevaluation it received. He was actually attached to direct Firestarter next, the Stephen King film, and he was fired from it after this movie came out. 
Damn. So the, he had, a, yeah, Damn. like you said, a multi-picture deal with the studio, and then they cut him loose because so the the budget was fifteen million, and if you adjust for inflation, that's about forty-five million to this day, and the box office gross was about twenty million, so that was about like fifty-two million dollar gross worldwide, and so they lost money on it because you got to split the uh, profits with theaters. So uh, that the box office hit plus the complete um, ridicule by all critics and and even science fiction fans hated this film, which is odd because, you know, filmmakers like, I mean, writers like H.P. Lovecraft, who helped define the genre um, in the early, in mid-early 20th century, it was very monstrous um, ideas and horrific things that he would describe. And then in a way, Carpenter kind of put that on the screen and audiences weren't ready for it. Uh, ultimately, as we all know, it's become um, a worldwide sensation it is regarded as not just one of the greatest horror films of all time, but also one of the greatest science fiction films of all time, which is really saying something. And I would say that things like this, it's when movies are initially riled, it's always like you got to take it with a grain of salt, even when it happens now, because, you know, The Shining was critically riled. This movie was critically riled. A bunch of others. Blade Runner also was like, what is this? A lot of people were like, what the hell is this? And then they've become the most respected films of their day. The reason for the box office bomb and failure, I would say, was its release date. So this film actually came out the same day as Blade Runner in 1982. And wasn't E.T. out in theaters as well that year? E.T. had come out just two weeks prior, and we all know E.T. is one of the most successful American movies of all time, still to this day, adjusted for inflation. So it was an absolute behemoth juggernaut at the box office. So it was still crushing in its third weekend when these two films came out. So... If the thing had come out maybe at a different time, it probably would have done better. But to compete against E.T., another alien movie, which everybody loved, and then compete against Blade Runner, another science fiction movie, uh, about like a nihilistic version, more bleak out, outset than perspective than E.T., it, it, those were audiences that it was competing with. And audiences just chose to see those two movies instead of E.T. And Blade Runner wasn't even that big of a success. It did pretty well, but it, 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 it wasn't anywhere. Nothing was near E.T.'s success in that year. But if the thing had come out at a different time, it probably would have done better for sure. However, it wouldn't have helped with the critical response, though, and the, the fan audience response. Because it's not just criti- it wasn't just critically hated. It was hated by audiences all over the country. So it was just... An odd movie for the time, and it was ahead of its time. And now we look back at it, it as like, how could you not like this movie? Which is kind of interesting to see how the art form can be judged more harshly. But then, in retrospect, you can't help but deny it's it's masterwork. Yeah, you could maybe argue that the audiences weren't really built for this yet. Obviously, we still had body horror going on, but it's still in yeah. the early phases. But that hardcore, like, deep, passionate horror fan base that... The 1980s really built with like David Cronenberg films and movies like this, like that great body horror, the great trippy things. And aliens were generally like E.T. You could say that people wanted like a more positive spin with aliens, maybe because of that reception and not like a completely nihilistic, dark, evil tone with them, even though there are plenty of aliens. Yeah, no, but there are plenty of but that's not invading Earth. I'm talking about on on Earth. Gotcha. Aliens coming to Earth. Mm -hmm. Less scary less doom and gloom versus this is like, oh, they're going to take over the world. Maybe people weren't completely ready for that yet, especially because of the popularity of E.T. This friendly alien from space, his heart glows, and he mm. touches fingers with people and heals Elliot. them. So, Elliot, Elliot. Elliot. So maybe people weren't ready for it, but clearly they weren't. 
But the development of this movie began as early as the mid-1970s when an adaptation of the 1938 movie Who Goes There was suggested to Universal Pictures, before then an adaptation of the aforementioned movie that was made in 1951 called The Thing from Another World was really the original of this movie. Now, production locations for this film, as Anthony said earlier, was shot in Alaska, they shot in Juneau, and as well as in British Columbia and Universal Studios Hollywood, where they had to freeze a bunch of sets for interiors. And they actually used ACs, air conditioners. Yeah, tons of air conditioners. Yeah. So principal photography band began in August 1981 in Juneau, Alaska. Filming lasted about 12 weeks there. Carpenter insisted on two weeks of rehearsals before filming as he wanted to see how scenes would play out. This was unusual at the time because of the expenses involved. Filming then moved to Universal's lot where the outside heat was over 100 degrees Fahrenheit. That's about 38 degrees Celsius. The internal sets were climate controlled to 28 degrees Fahrenheit, negative 2 degrees Celsius to facilitate the work. The team considered building the sets inside an existing refrigerated structure but weren't unable to find one large enough. Instead, they collected as many portable or air conditioners as they could, closed off the stage, and used humidifiers and misters to add moisture to the air. After watching a roughly... A roughly assembled cut of filming to date, Carpenter was unhappy that the film seemed to feature too many scenes of men standing around talking. <laughs> he rewrote some already completed scenes to take place outdoors to be shot on location when principal photography moved to Stuart, British Columbia, which is in Canada. That was a smart move. Yeah, it definitely was. Carpenter was determined to use authentic locations instead of studio sets. And his successes on Halloween and The Fog, which came out in 1980, gave him the credibility to take on that much bigger budget production of The Thing. A film scout location located in an area just outside Stewart along the, Stewart. Canadian, <laughs> along the Canadian coast, which people can visit. There's nothing there. It's just like a giant rock formation, some mountains <laughs> in the background. But you can make your trek out there. It's I not like the Star Wars set in the desert. I recommend <laughs> doing it in the summertime. <laughs> During the journey there, the crew bus said, slid in the snow toward the unprotected edge of the road, nearly sending it down a 500-foot embankment. Some of the crew stayed in the small mining town during filming, while others lived on residential barges on the Portland Canal. If that bus fell down, they probably would have never made the movie. Probably never would have finished it. <laughs> My God. <laughs> they would make the 27-mile drive up a small, winding road to the filming location in Alaska, where the exterior outpost sets were built. That's Outpost 31. The sets had been built in Alaska during the summer atop a rocky area overlooking a glacier. Or glacier, however you want to say it. I like it. how you say glacier. Glacier. That's how... Uh, Glass Bear, Bear Grylls. Bear Grylls. Glacier. That's, I got that from Bear Grylls. <laughs> oh, we're on this glacier over here. It's freezing outside. Let will me we jump in the water. Will we survive? <laughs> in preparation for snow to fall and cover the sets in the winter. They were used for both interior and exterior filming, meaning they could not be heated above freezing inside to ensure there was always snow on the roof. Outside, the temperature was so low that the camera lenses would freeze and break. The crew had to leave the cameras in the freezing temperatures as keeping them inside in the warmth resulted in foggy lenses that took hours to clear. Filming greatly depended on the weather. Took three weeks to complete just these exteriors with snow making it impossible to film on some days. Rigging the explosives necessary to destroy the set in the finale required eight hours. Damn. Cool, cool uh, filming location. But I mean, it makes all the difference because when you look at this film and they are outside and it's just really stunning. The photography they got, uh, the beautiful lighting, you know, shooting at dusk and dawn to really get those incredible colors in the sky. As well as, you know, trying to replicate that with the interiors where you get a lot of blue light pouring in from the windows. And it's I, I love the contrast of blue light 
uh, of basically moonlight contrasting with the yellow interior lights. I think it's always just a stunning combination of colors uh, for cinematography. And it was shot, like I said, anamorphic lenses. That's why it's so widescreen. But it adds like so much range to the to the to the images where you can really fit a lot of actors in the backgrounds when you use the anamorphic lenses because it gives you a wider range of visibility. And for this film, it works so well where you can just see people in the background here and there. And it's just kind of adds to this like claustrophobia and this mystery of any one of them could be the thing like watching from afar. And just so the cinematography actually plays quite a lot of uh, uh, quite so much into the storytelling uh, narratively. And it was just so well done. And on top of that, incredibly well edited as well. Now, this film takes place in Antarctica, obviously. I'm not sure how many people were living on that continent back in the 1980s when this film takes place and when it was shot. But right now, in the summer, just a little context, on the entire continent of Antarctica, there are about 5,000 people Really, in the summertime, all mostly at research facilities and stations. And then during the wintertime, that number is greatly reduced to just under 1,000 people on the entire continent in the winter because it's so cold there. Mm-hmm. So, but this is again just based on today's numbers. I bet you it was much less than that back then, especially oh, yeah. with less communication technology that was developed. That's why we, one of the great parts of the film is it being an isolation kind of cabin fever movie where you lose communication with everybody on the continent, <laughs> which is great. And also, John Carpenter has been coy in teasing a potential sequel. To this film, The Thing 2. Now, I would be there day one. Absolutely. Now, we know The Thing was remade into like a prequel reboot in 2007, 2011, starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead. It did not perform very well. It was critically panned, and it's honestly not that great. It's, yeah. They didn't need that movie at all. It's the same thing, basically. I also don't like how they made some of them Americans. Yeah, I thought it was like this is the Norwegian space the station research center. There's like five Americans. At least they had uh, what's his name from Game of Thrones is a uh, is Lan- oh yeah, yeah uh, they Jamie had, Lannister yeah, uh, that actor Nikolai Kosterwell do yeah do, yeah he, he's in that movie. But you know <laughs> studios are gonna studio and it did not perform very well. But in 2023, this is the most Carpenter's been engaging with conversations about a sequel because obviously people have been asking him about a sequel for 40 years. But this year, he's been saying all kinds of things in interviews. So he's this is a quote from him. There are updates that I am not allowed to speak of. We'll see. Well, we shall see. Never say never in the movie business. Never say never. So he's been kind of teasing Easter eggs all year about a potential sequel directed by him. I think he should be the one who directs it because the other the prequel it was all right, but it was still. And they did use some cool um, practical effects, but there was, like, I mean, they kind of lied. There was still plenty of CGI. Oh, it's mostly CGI. Yeah, there, I remember during the marketing for the film, they're like, oh, we went full, we did as much practical work as possible, and I watched the film, and I was like, this is, like, so much CGI, You watch the trailer, it's just all CGI. How yeah. can you do that? I mean, the, the movie's famous for its practicality, and if you're going to make a remake, try to at least emulate as much as you can. They did do some really cool practical stuffs. Some practical effects. I did see behind the scenes of that film. There is still plenty, but they did still rely on CGI quite a bit. However, a sequel is totally possible because there are actually like dozens of endings that are possibilities because there's actually a video game that came out, which... Um, Carp- How long ago? Uh, in 2002. It's called The Thing. And so in that video game, the ending is revealed that McCready survives and is picked up by a search and rescue team while Childs freezes to death John Carpenter has stated that the game is now canon oh. to the world. 
Oh. However, there's also multiple endings. So we all know we all know the ending of this movie, and it's famous because its ambiguity is one of the reasons that is one of the things that makes this movie so great. The ambiguity, ambiguity of Childs and McCready at the end, the lone survivors just sitting uh, in the wreckage of the station, and it's such a brilliant ending where it cuts, and you're like, "Oh my God, is it one of them the thing? Which one is the thing? Did he drink uh, gasoline or so, is it booze?" So like, yeah. yeah, let's get into it. I think it's uh, let's just fuck it, fuck it. Let's just talk about the ending, the, right yeah, now. the ending right now. Yeah, you're you're on it. So my theory, there are there's a bunch of theories. Well, first of all, they wrote a bunch of endings and even filmed a bunch of different endings. I'll get into that real quick right now. So multiple endings were filmed with even more endings planned and considered in some capacity. Some were written, some weren't filmed at all. One ending cuts to sometime later where McCready has been rescued to civilization and passes a blood test for a mysterious government agency and some who know what the thing is. So they filmed that. And then another ending they filmed was solely a precautionary measure it was never used also. So for test screenings, John Carpenter wanted a more upbeat conclusion in case they rejected the pessimistic ending. Um, the other filming, the other filmed ending showed um, Malamute, Malamute, presumably the thing, surviving the explosion, stopping to take one final look at the burning camp before running off into the snow. A third ending simply showed Childs getting up and walking away into the snowstorm at night, leaving McCready perishing alone in the cold. This ending was never used. So those were actually filmed endings. Can you find them on YouTube? Or have you I, doubt it. Yeah. I doubt it. I, I, I doubt it. I doubt it. <laughs> <laughs> What's that from? Is it Bernie? The, yeah, Bernie Bernie's Fields. Or, yeah, Bernie In New England. Sorry, yeah. that's very specific to Massachusetts. <laughs> <laughs> and then some other proposed endings that went unfilmed, including a climactic showdown between McCready and Childs, a rescue chopper arriving just in time to save them, and even the two men committing suicide with one final stick of dynamite. So those were the endings that they wrote and tr- and thought about, but never actually filmed. Wow, those are really cool. They I, all work. They all work they, in they some all way. Work, but I think what they chose was the best one, where it's yeah. ambigu- ambiguity, ambiguous. Who is one of them? The thing yeah. is, Childs. The the theory that McCready gave him a test and gave him the liquor, the J and B scotch. So, so and that's it's actually yeah. is there gasoline in there? Because he was throwing why, Molotov cocktails. And that's yeah. why he chuckles and laughs because he's like, oh, he's clearly the thing. Because the thing wouldn't recognize if it was gasoline or alcohol. Yeah. Because it's a thing. It's the thing. But then I think the most definitive evidence, and this is something that John Carpenter has actually confirmed. So when you watch the film and the ending, and McCready and Childs are sitting in the wreckage of the station. And there's just the flames in the background. It's backlit. And they're just talking. It's obviously extremely cold. When you watch the shots of the actors, when Kurt Russell's character, McCready, is breathing, there is so much breath coming out of his mouth. It's just clouds of, of breath. You know what I mean? But then when Child speaks, there's no breath coming out of his mouth at all. So it clearly shows that the thing is he's the thing because he's not actually breathing. If you watch the scene, I'll put it on, on the screen, the clouds of, sm- of breath for Kurt Russell are insanely big, and then there's nothing for Keith, Keith, uh, for, um, uh, uh, Keith David's breath. And now Carpenter responded to a Reddit posting in, 2020, in 2013, an Ask Me Anything thing. AMA. AMA. <laughs> he, he responded that he never understood how, how there could be any confusion about which one of them is the thing and which one was human because the last scene he wrote... Kurt Russell and Keith David are staring each other down, harshly backlit. It's completely, glaringly obvious that Kurt Russell is breathing and Keith David is not, end quote. 
by John Carpenter, the man himself. However, he's also alluded to the fact that they're both human because so he's kind of like, he bounces around Carpenter because if you look, uh, Keith David, his character Childs is wearing an earring. He had an earring on the whole film. However, it's revealed that the thing, when it mutates and digests something and, and assimilates and imitates something, it can't create anything that's not biological. And so that's it can't like create clothes. It can't create anything. And so it wouldn't have been able to create in its assimilation an earring. And so Childs wearing an earring is proof that he's human. And then Carpenter also said that's a possibility. Didn't they also do a trick with lightning with the eyes, kind of like Blade Runner for replicants? People say that, but I don't see that. I, I've I've seen some posts about it in some YouTube videos. I don't think it's I, I don't I, think it's completely confirmed. I, I think it's kind of I think it's a little inconsistent. That's the thing. It's so inconsistent. Where it, it, with Blade Runner, it's pretty consistent. Where you can say, oh yeah, that's definitely a hint. Oh, it's incredibly consistent. Yeah. But with this, I mean, it might you might see it here and there, but it's definitely not prevalent throughout the entire film. Yeah, Ripley literally, I mean, Ridley literally had like a light on the edge of the camera lens to make sure that they got that in on the shots of replicants whenever they're going. But I love the ending because it is up in the air. Who do you like? If you were just like, what do you think? Like, I think what's your opinion? I think McCready's human and Childs is. The thing. Agreed. Personally. I think so, too. I think it's pretty obvious. And I think the Molotov cocktail thing is great. Yeah, it's pretty obvious with that. And then also the breath thing is also apparent, but also that was a practical effect that they did, mm -hmm. which I'll get into right now because the so, practical oh. filmmaking of this movie is just off the charts terrific, and I wish more movies were like this. So it has a great blend of simple practical effects as well as complex and really impressive groundbreaking visual effects and in, in, uh, practical effects, specifically with the makeup. Now, simple practical effects include actors taking drags of cigarettes before they are about to give lines. So when the camera cuts to them, oh my god, McCready's breathing out smoke because Kurt Russell just ripped a cigarette. That's why it's so thick to make it show very thick smoke because obviously they're shooting outdoors, but it's not always freezing temperature. Uh, freezing enough to get breath out of your you need really need like below freezing. to be that visible yeah to be that visible and yeah. that strong it's got to be like below zero freezing mm -hmm. fahrenheit almost in like i don't know what's that negative 15 so celsius smart so it's got to be super cold it's not like that every day in alaska and british columbia and at night so they would literally just have an actor specifically kurt russell on a lot of his scenes because he has a lot of dialogue the camera uh, it, the shot cuts to him tons of smoke coming out as he's yeah. speaking because kurt just ripped a cigarette that's wicked great. clever, so effective, and no one know, and it just adds to the aesthetic and feel that we're in a freezing temperature, as well as one of my favorite practical effects in this film are the matte paintings. They're gorgeous. There are two really important ones, and they are, I think, some of the best ever. The first one is the opening shot of Earth is a matte painting done by Jim Danforth where the spacecraft is going towards Earth. That's a, that's a matte painting. It's really beautiful and really incredible. And then the other gorgeous matte painting is the spaceship excavation site with obviously McCready and the other guy, the other guys as they're like propelling down and they see the spaceship, the excavation site that Nor Norwegians found. That also is a massive, well, not massive, it's a, a beautiful matte painting. It looks great. It and that's done by up. Albert Whitlock. And those two guys, Jim Danforth and Albert Whitlock, they are responsible for some of your favorite matte paintings or favorite movies with Matt Pink's, Alfred Hitchcock movies, Star Wars movies, they are incredible geniuses. I wonder if they did the Butch Cassidy and Sundance jump. Possibly. Uh, jumping off the cliff. I'll have to look that's that up. A, that's like one of the best ever because it was a moment of action. But that's a that's an art craft that I feel like 
is forgotten because green screens and blue screens have mostly replaced it. And obviously, the volume, pros and cons, it's replaced that as well. But also, it's just a more modern version of that. Which It you is, know, yeah. It's it's, just it's, I think it's a very it. great tool for filmmaking if you use it effectively. But sometimes, productions use it too much. But I think matte paintings are, are still gorgeous. They still hold up. They're still timeless. And those two specifically in this movie are, are exceptional and still hold up. Yeah, I really adore those. And John Carpenter still worked a relatively modest budget as a way to save money. He had a, this really great idea of specifically going back to the ending where the station's been destroyed and there's only Childs and McCready left. That was actually filmed pretty early on in the movie because they used it for the Norwegian rubble. So the Norwegian station that's been burned and destroyed, it was actually the station where the Americans are in. I, I, so, I, was, I was thinking that yeah. because this is obviously what happened to the Norwegians, yeah. what happened at the end of this. We got to burn this whole place down. So, yeah, so rather, than, rather than building another station than burning it and destroying it, Carpenter, he just he destroyed the station in the movie, and then they used that as the set for the no, ruined Norwegian station. So clever. This movie is one of the best first acts of all time, which it we'll really get into is. in a little bit. Yeah. There's one more, well, plenty more practical effects, but one of my favorites, maybe my favorite, it's actually not the prosthetics. It is the opening title card of The Thing because it's one of my favorite all time because not only do we have Ennio Morricone's incredible music and great sound design and special effect sounds like alien sounds and like rays, it sounds awesome. It sounds like a cosmic death ray <laughs> tearing flesh or something. But this was practically done, this practical, this opening title sequence. And in... It's the same style as The Thing from Another World, which came out in 1951. Now, in the 1982 featurette, The Making of The Thing, visual effects designer Peter Curran explains the technical handiwork that went into the making that into making that tear a hole in the world title. As it turns out, it involved a fish tank, a trash bag, and a match. To quote Peter Curran, we had a fish tank that was about four feet wide by two feet high. And I put smoke in the fish tank. Then on the back of the fish tank, I put the title, The Thing. I drew it on an animation cell. The designer who also worked on the projects like Robocop and Beetlejuice explained that he put a piece of garbage plastic bag behind the animation cell, which was attached to its frame. Sorry, just to stop. An animation cell is a clear piece of plastic that they'll draw like an animation on. And there's nothing else except for what you draw. So that's what they... Draw, that's what hand-drawn animation, that's how it's done. So it's a, like a blank sheet. Thanks for the context. Of, of clear, like, just, I'm sure you've seen like yeah. old cartoon animators yeah. like flipping that's, that on top of like a yeah. background. Yeah. That's what a cell is. So he put a piece of garbage bag plastic behind the animation cell, which was attached to its frame and stretched across. Behind that, he positioned a light in the direction of the letters. So basically, picture a fish tank full of smoke with a celluloid-like title drawing attached to the back in a black trash bag attached to that. And then to quote him, when I photographed it, I hit the garbage bag plastic with a little flame, you know, like a match. I would just light it around the garbage bag plastic and then the garbage bag plastic would open up and let the title come, let the light come through the letters. And that's how the letters looked like they form, you know, and burn on with the rays and everything. So just so creative. I'm looking at it right now. It's amazing. Just, Have you seen the image? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's I so watched cool. it recently. Yeah, yeah. Wow. But, um, oh, the behind the oh, scenes. Oh, no, yeah. So, look at So simple. Yeah. It's incredible. It's beautiful. It's it's so sensational. and Just a trash bag on it. fire. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> trash bag on fire with a fish tank full of smoke to create the opening title credits of the thing, which 
it's top 10 all time for me of opening title credits. It's, it's sensational and all done practically in a studio. Now I'm watching a GIF of it and I'm like, oh my God, it is a trash bag. Probably like made it in a garage too, actually. (laughs) It's amazing. It's so cool. I mean, it's it's really stunning, and it's it's pretty similar to the original. The original had a uh, it, he just slightly changed the uh, the text a little bit, and the movie actually is more faithful to the novel than the 1951 film because the 1951 film they actually threw in some female characters and actually had a love story and love interest story, which is not in the novel at all. And so they were much more faithful to the story of the actual story that was written, which I I think is. One of the reasons why it works so well, it makes more sense because the isolation, um, it wouldn't make sense to have other characters arrive. For me, that would take me out of it because one of the most incredible aspects to the film is the sense of isolation, the sense of claustrophobia, and the idea that, you know, once the equipment to, once the vehicles are destroyed, there's no way out of here, you know, and then no one's going to survive. Very much like The Shining. Yeah, absolutely. And just that, idea that nobody can be trusted now and even the audience doesn't even know who to trust and uh, they do a terrific job of making us think certain people might have become the thing but then we're wrong and then it's just like characters who we least expected are actually the thing so they did a wonderful job of keeping a great amount of mystery and anxiety for the audience as they're watching and the special effects prosthetics and makeup is sensational this was groundbreaking stuff Rob Botton, who was only 22 years old, was in charge of the special effects makeup when he started the project. And I think one of the best uses of this practical filmmaking and effects for the thing, obviously, the creature design is sensational. And they got so creative. What's, your, what's your favorite? The chest chomp. I was going to say that too. And and also, I love when the, the dog transformation. But the chest, the chest chomp, this scene in question finds the film's lead helicopter pilot, R.J. McCready, in a standoff with other surviving workers at a research station in Antarctica, all of them questioning whether the other is secretly the thing in disguise. The tension then causes one of the men, Norris, to seemingly suffer a heart attack, except when the station's on-hand medic, Dr. Cooper, tries to defibrillate him. Norris's chest suddenly bursts open, turns into a giant mouth with giant teeth, singing its pointed teeth into Cooper's forearms, and ripping off his arms from his hands. <laughs> it's crazy. Now, in order to ensure this grotesque chest chomp was as convincing as possible, because I'm sure if you talk about trying to do that in 1982, it's probably difficult. According to Film School Rejects, Carpenter and his crew used a hydraulic mechanism to make Norris's fake body cavity snap open and shut like a cartoon Venus flytrap. They also created two realistic brace-supported replica arms, utilizing dental wax for the bones and jello and a gelatin blood tubes for everything else and attached them to Joe Carone, a double amputee who served as Dissart's stand-in for the close-up of Cooper's arms being bitten and torn off. Carone can also be seen wearing a mask modeled after Dissart in a wider shot that quickly follows showing Cooper screaming in agony and flailing his body's, flailing his bloody stumps. It's, it's an impossible shot that they made work. And it's, it's all done in camera. It's absolutely insane because the first few times you watch it, you're like, there's no way they actually did that. It must be animated or something. It must be like visual effects. But yeah. like to realize that that's actual practical special effects like on camera, on the set, the day of, it's unbelievable. And it, it was just a great idea to use double amputee to actually be able to have the arms being chomped off. And man, that, that moment of the film is absolutely incredible. It is the big moment, I would say, for the movie. That's when you realize 
how fucking crazy it's going to get. It's the real first major attack that we see. And it's also the moment where we see just how uh, powerful the thing is, how its transformative, transformative qualities are basically unstoppable, and how it can survive. Because the first instance, obviously, is the dogs. But we didn't see it, like, attack a human, really. So with this moment to see it create, like, a mouth in someone's body, you're like, holy shit, what the fuck? It's insane. And I, I just love that moment. It, it, for me, that was the big moment of the movie where it was just so shocking and out of nowhere. And also, it's a moment where it makes you wonder, um, is the thing completely in charge when it assimilates into a uh, new form? Because there's a shot of him in charge of what? The body, the new imitation. Because I'm sorry, what's the character's name who had the chest cavity? Norris. Norris. So earlier, moments before this, Norris looks out the window and he has like, there's a moment where he's like, ah, he like, his, his chest hurts and he's clearly having like an odd chest palpitation and he reacts to the pain. It makes you wonder, is he Norris, kind of, as still, or is it just totally the thing, the alien? Oh, you mean control of, like, the, yeah, the, the soul, mind. not the yeah. body. Yeah, yeah, Because that make it, makes it seem as though, like, that shot where he's, like, confused about, like, pain in his chest. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, is that Norris? Is he still, like, thinking he's Norris? And the thing is just, like, kind of just, like, watching from within? It's so fascinating because I think that's Carpenter just messing with the audience, yeah. trying to get you ready and suspect him of something, but also not suspect him because the thing wouldn't react like that exactly by itself. Exactly, that's what I'm saying. So I think that's just one of those things to divert attention from mm -hmm. Norris until, and then the heart attack, and then the, the I think that just adds the surprise of the chest cavity mm -hmm. popping open from yeah. the defibrillation that, like, you don't suspect Norris at all because, oh, he seems human. He has a chest pain or something. Maybe something's not happening right. Um, the thing, the thing with the thing... So interesting, this this being, this monster. Let's talk about it because it clearly takes, it knows the person so well, not only on a biological level, but it seems to be like even the soul. Like they know their memories. They know everything about the person, just everything up going forward. They don't completely know how to socially interact with everyone perfectly. It's almost like a, per, it's like an, a, a biological AI in a way. You know, it's- What's it's, like, give an example- so it's it's not completely like, like you could test it, I think, in a way of maybe a, a verbal test. So here's what I'm saying. Maybe when it perfectly finish, when it finishes its perfect imitation, maybe you are still you, but it's you're just the thing. You're made up of the thing because maybe at the end, child thinks he's human, but he doesn't know he's a thing and thing and the thing doesn't reveal itself until it's caught. You know what I mean? That might be the genius of it. It's possible because then, even before Norris's death, and, and, and also maybe Palmer didn't know he was a thing until it's revealed the blood test failed, and then the thing took over the body. Yeah. You know what I mean? Maybe it it's so elusive that it hides within the mind of the person it imitates. So when it finishes its imitation, that person, their mind maybe is still intact. Like Blair, especially. That's a good yes. point. So Blair is the, the like the top scientist there. He's the one who runs like the probability program, which was one of my favorite moments of the film where he's like understanding the thing, the assimilation. But you could also argue, could he be the thing at this point? Yeah. And seeing like the assimilation effects of it. But he's, he goes crazy and tries yeah. to shut the whole place down. So he's probably not the thing at that point. But I love that program because it says likely probability that 
someone else in the crew, someone in the crew is infected by the thing, 75%. Yeah. And then also, it, he runs a test with his basic oh, the simulation, the simulation yeah. for assimilation of the entire planet. Entire world population infected in 27,000 hours if the thing reaches sim- civilization. That's three years. So you can assume Blair right now is not yet the thing. Yeah. And that's why he goes crazy, starts destroying all the radio equipment and communications gear and cars. But then when he's locked up and trapped in there, he's of course the thing because he's the thing building a spaceship. And he's kind of like the, the final form of the thing at the end of the film under the tunnels and everything. I'll, uh, so I'll, there's, it was actually an accident. All of that. Oh, it was. So John Carpenter, they never had scenes of him in the lab using the computers. And so he, he, he they filmed the movie, and then everything of Blair in his lab using the computers, that was done after principal photography. So they they had filmed him destroying the, the area. He, and so they, they never showed him doing the probability in the cells and stuff, right? Not during principal photography. Okay. So during principal photography, what they did film was him destroying the, the communications room and the vehicles. And so he wanted to add more amb- ambiguity because it made it seem too obvious that he was a thing. And so what they did was after principal photography, they got that actor and built those new sets. And so they filmed all of the computer stuff after the fact. And they put that into the movie. And then it makes you think, wait, is he the thing? Is he human? So it adds even more mystery to him. Because you could, then you could argue... He's been infected the whole time, but maybe the thing hadn't taken over his mind yet. Like, you're arguing that it's possible that the thing is such a perfect simulation that it hides inside the person until yes. it decides to come out. Exactly. So, And also, so for Palmer, during the test, I think it's Palmer thinks he's Palmer. And then and the thing is just waiting dormantly for when it needs to react to something in an emergency uh, as a threat. And so when the, the test fails and the blood jumps out... Then you see Palmer's like mouth twitch, and I think that's an instance of the thing taking over. I think that's a great, great theory. Because yeah. then at the end, Childs thinks he's human, but he's not human. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so that's what I mean. I think that it's a it's it might not. But be then a, wouldn't Childs recognize that it's gasoline, or is the thing hiding that? Maybe it's not gasoline. Maybe it's not. Maybe that's actual uh, whiskey. Maybe you know what I mean. And then. But it's, not, it's, never, it's never confirmed and that McCready's just laughing because they're both yeah. going to die. Yeah, it's never confirmed that it's actually 100% gasoline in that bottle. That could be just a whiskey bottle. That's why I think John Carpenter would never give a straight answer about the end because he went through that eff- much effort to keep it ambiguous about yeah. it. Blair especially. So, and even the dog, too. The yeah. first time the dog is put inside the dog cage just seems like a normal dog the whole time. Even the other dogs don't really react to it until it starts to become the thing and yeah. releases itself. It was dormant, and then... But then also, I think that the thing can take control when it wants to because it guides the dog. The dog is something that kind of pokes a hole in the theory because... But also, hold on, real quick, to add to the theory, when Clark is turned, it's he's the thing. He's not Clark, but that's because he hasn't finished this, the assimilation. He's got the thing on hands. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. So it's, he just goes like... Oh. <laughs> so it, it's not thinking it's Clark because it, the thing didn't finish its imitation. So that's that's that adds to my theory. Where if it had finished the theory, it had finished its imitation, it would have been like, "No, I'm Clark. What are you guys talking about?" But the dog, the the dog pokes a hole in that theory because what I love about the first act is because it, it gets great on rewatches because you, you know it's the thing is the thought is the, is the dog. I keep saying thug. <laughs> the thing is the, the thing, dog. The thug. The, the thug. thug. And you see the dog is constantly watching things. 
He's watching the hell. He was watching people arrive. He's watching what the humans are doing. And in a way, it's scheming. You can see it's scheming. You know what I mean? And it chooses to go to uh, Palmer's room uh, that night. You know what I mean? To turn Palmer. Well, you can argue that because the thing, it's so intelligent and it knows that it's in the form of a dog because he's been human before. So it understands exactly what humans are. It doesn't are. need to. It doesn't have pretend to pretend to... that it's a dog yeah. to fool other dogs. It can hide in plain sight as a dog. Yes. So I think it's it's there. It's actively there just trying to scheme you right because the thing is really fascinating. I have a little background on the thing as well. So Tell us about uh, the thing's childhood. The th- <laughs> Grew up in a broken home. His father was... That explains the villain. Use of alcoholic. Let's oh, em- yeah, here we go with another... Empathetic killer. Empathetic villain. Here we go. <laughs> the thing is an extremely hostile, shape-shifting, extraterrestrial organism... And the titular main character and antagonist of <laughs> all over the, the place of the tone. <laughs> science fiction film, The Thing. It's prequel video games and literature. The Thing has the ability to assimilate other life forms in order to survive and spread. The original physical characteristics of The Thing and its motivations are completely unknown, as it could have assimilated hundreds, if not thousands, of other species before it crashed on Earth. Unlike most creatures, The Thing possesses no inherent standard anatomy. It may very well be that the thing is a colonial organism whose assimilation instructions are carried on the genetic level. The thing's shape-shifting nature means that the biology can be the same as the organism it has replicated or is in the process of replicating. The thing has the ability to reconstitute itself following immense damage and is invulnerable to most conventional forms of attack. However, it is vulnerable to fire and potentially molecular acid since both destroy the creature at a cellular level. It is very tolerant of cold, placing itself in cryogenic stasis until found by unsuspecting victims. It was frozen for 100,000 years, and that's why they found, the Norwegians found it in that ice hole that they carved inside their camp because the thing escaped the ship as it was crashing 100,000 years ago and then crawled to the ice to freeze and just remain in stasis until it thawed out eventually. It chilled out. (laughs) (laughs) And also, so it's past of possibly uh, entering the worlds of hundreds and even thousands of other worlds with intelligent life or just physical life, biological life. That's what allows it to be so varied with its formation. So that's why it can have all these monstrous things because it's probably imitated creatures from all over the universe that look monstrous to us. So that's why, that explains why it always has these crazy shapes when it's imitating something. Yeah, so it probably just calls back, like, let me get these yeah. spider legs from let, the spider Let, let me bring out the spider guy again. <laughs> I haven't done the spider one in a minute. Now, when changing form, it bursts open and allows a variety of strange and terrifying forms and bits of previously assimilated anatomy to form, like Anthony just said, such as tentacles, insect-like limbs, eyes, teeth, claws, even faces, eventually rearranging its cellular structure to mimic its desired shape. The thing is also capable of continuing normal functions when lacking eyes, ears, sense of smell, or other ways of interacting with the environment, and is capable of producing said organs appendages to accomplish those functions. So originally, it was it's basically saying it was a blank slate of, you could a, argue. of a genetic thing. Yeah. Because I, I always wonder when I watch this movie, I wonder if the Norwegians saw its true form because it was it was in its spaceship and then it, it crawled out. Maybe no, because I think it, there it, is our, no true form. Yeah, that there maybe once was, but yeah. it just uses whatever form is best for its survival at the moment. Uh huh. So they, I, I, I'm always curious 
about what they thought out because they showed it in the first in the in the prequel. I'm trying to remember what it was like when they first thought it out. That's not canon. I'm not even okay. gonna count that as. Yeah, I know, but like they like. they showed some version of the thing. So I always wonder when I watch this movie. I eliminate that from my doesn't m- exist, man. Yeah. So when I, when I watch this movie, I'm like, I wonder what the Norwegians discovered, like what its physical makeup was. You know what I mean? So I'm always curious about that. Yeah, it's a good if point. I always and when I watch the movie, I'm like. Is there like a an original form of the thing that's physical that is like it's it's like OG form? I wonder. And if it or maybe it chooses a form it likes better. It could just be like a blob. Like its favorite. Like it's it, just Kirby. Yeah. <laughs> it could be like a floating Kirby blob. <laughs> that's its original form until it finds something. Or it could be something tiny. You never know. Yeah. But it's also incredibly smart because I, we all know Tony Stark is wicked smart building an iron suit in a cave. He built this in a cave. Tony Stark built this in a cave with nothing but scra- <laughs> with scraps. <laughs> that's what that's it. Now the I'm thing not Tony Stark built a spaceship <laughs> in the base in the in an underground tunnel of an outpost in in Antarctica. So it's wicked fucking smart. It's wicked smart. <laughs> also, it makes you wonder: it, is there a whole race of things? I wonder too. Yeah, I think so. Probably. Because like, where did it get its, its intelligence? Or from? maybe it's just one being that over thousands, hundreds of thousands of years traveling the universe has built spaceships on its own from space travel. Learning. It's learned from things. Absorbing it's from every kind of creature it's gotten. I like so that. It's, maybe it's killed entire races, or it's just constantly just hip, skipping planets. I like that. Getting more intelligence. Mm-hmm. This movie's very Invasion of the Body Snatchers, too. Very, very, very much Very reminiscent so. of that. How about we jump to our intermission, Anthony? And then we'll get back, because there's so much still to talk about with the thing. I know, it's been, I mean, I fucking love this movie, man. So good. But before we continue, the very best way to support Raiders of the Lost podcast is to leave us a five-star review on either Apple or Apple, a.k.a. iTunes. Apple, you can leave a written review. We love to read those. <laughs> on Apple or Apple? Huh? <laughs> you said Apple or Apple. No, I said Apple or iTunes. No, you said Apple or Apple. Did I? Yeah. I said on Apple. Well, I'm editing this. I will double check because I'm pretty sure I said on Apple. You can leave us written reviews, which we love to read off. I'm going to read one off in about a minute or so. But also Spotify, we love those five-star reviews. And the other best way to support our show is to become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. We have five different tiers of membership in every tier has access to two weekly bonus episodes, the weekly chat, which goes on Wednesdays and is exclusively on Patreon now, as well as a weekly bonus episode of the show. Everyone has access, whether you're paying $2, $5, $10, $25, or $100. Each tier also comes with awesome perks. They obviously get better the higher up you go. Things like free merchandise, video messages from us, as well as the $25 tier gets you a custom episode. The $10 tier also gets you access to our Discord we have watch parties and communicate with y'all on there all the time. Super fun. $100, the granddaddy package. You get so many great perks. My favorites are probably the personal watch party, as well as you get to come on the show after three months for a fun guest segment, pop you in on the intermission, have a blast. So thank you to all of our patrons around the world who support us. You are the reason why we can do the show full-time and make a ridiculous amount of content for you every single week. So thank you so much. Head on over to patreon.com slash Raiders of Lost Podcast to join today. This episode is sponsored by MoviePosters.com, the number one place to get your posters online today. Be sure to use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. We're also doing a movie poster giveaway in this episode in order to enter for a chance to win a free movie poster from MoviePosters.com. 
all you got to do is head on over to our YouTube channel and make a comment in our The Thing episode. That will enter you into the contest, and we will pick a winner in one week's time. Good luck, everybody. And in the meantime, be sure to head on over to MoviePosters.com for all of your poster needs and use our promo code RAIDERS10 to get 10% off your order today. You ready for this intermission? Ready. See if we can stump Anthony. The first, the quotes. Oh, you've stumped me plenty of times. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the quote's great. But let me finish it because you're going to know it immediately. This is more for the audience. Here we go. Because it was a 50-50 shot on whether you'd be going left or right. You see, we're both going left. You could have just as easily been going left too. If that was the case, it would have been a while before you started getting scared. But since you're going the other way, I'm afraid you're going to have to start getting scared immediately. Hey, what's this guy's name? Stuntman Mike. <laughs> Stuntman Mike. <laughs> Death proof. Yes, sir. Those nachos, man. <laughs> I really want nachos. I mean, the second time we've talked about it this week, the nachos. delicious, man. Nachos and death proof. All right, here's my quote. I'm like a bad penny. I always turn up. A bad penny, I always turn up. That's a great quote. I'm like a bad penny. I always turn up. Sounds like a killer. I don't know. That's Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. All right. She talks in her sleep. <laughs> <laughs> How'd you know she was a Nazi? <laughs> she talks in her sleep. <laughs> it's one of my favorite Junior. lines ever. Junior. It's one of my favorites. Guess this movie release here. Carrie. The original. 1978. 1976. Damn. Damn. What year did Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade come out? 1984. 89. Oh my gosh, that, that, youthful. That late, that youthful. That youthful. (laughs) It was the last crusade. (laughs) (laughs) No, it wasn't. (laughs) Find out soon. All right, movie pop quiz time. What Australian actor plays a main role in the 2011 prequel remake of The Thing? Joel Edgerton. Yes, sir. Joel's in that movie. He basically plays McCready. Yeah, he's, I, mean, it's, I was like, come on. Beard and hair. It's like, come on. It's too, it's too close to it. <laughs> Although, I mean, if I was in an outpost in Antarctica and could grow a beard, I would have a beard. <laughs> All right. Here's my quiz question. Fargo won two Oscars. Can you name them? Roger Deakins, cinematography. Eh. Screenplay. Yes. And then Francis McDormand. Correct. Yeah. Ding, 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 ding. There we go. You got any Raider haters for us, Anthony? Raider Raider haters. I got a couple unsubscribes on Twitter. Oh, you got some Twitter ones? Let's hear them. So um, I posted a video of the, from a prisoner of Azkaban, the Dementor train attack. Mm -hmm. I posted that whole scene. And then I wrote, I justify my daily chocolate habit with this scene from the Dementor attack <laughs> because Lupin's like eat this it's chocolate it helps it really helps it really helps so he keeps telling Harry to eat the chocolate and then someone wrote uh hold on, let me pull up their name <laughs> but they hit us with an unsubscribed on that it was the white wolf this is Jay I don't like chocolate unsubscribe 
<laughs> I don't like chocolate. <laughs> I have a, a great one. Dylan Chip wrote in one of our TikTok clips, I can't hear the Hans Zimmer music over your guys' loud voices. Unsubscribed. <laughs> <laughs> and I wrote, I missed the part where that's my problem. And then Samuel Parker wrote, how dare you guys give the masterpiece that is Morbin Time a one star on Letterboxd. You sirs have earned an unsubscribed. And I wrote, it's unsubscribing time. <laughs> I have a real hate, a real hater comment. In our Empire list re- episode, where we made fun of the Empire 100 movies list, the pop star, the Pope star wrote, it doesn't get much more obnoxious film bro than this. We know movies. We know cinema. You're very full of yourselves. This list is a mediocre. This list is mediocre, but it obviously took the popularity of movies into account, and not just critical acclaim, which is respectable. If you want to criticize, try to say something meaningful instead of making funny the movies without giving any reasons. I'm sorry that it, it was called the greatest movies of all time, not the most popular movies of all time. Why wasn't Transformers on there? Then? Yeah, like, when you say the greatest movies of all time, that kind of just defeats the idea of like that's it, the stupidest being comment I've ever, list. I've ever yeah. heard. If it said the most loved movies of all time, sure, yeah, absolutely. But when you say something's the greatest of all time, there needs to be some fucking analysis in that, and it has to be dissected. And, and you have to include movies before the year 1980 in it. <laughs> okay, Empire, I'm talking to you. And by the way, and that- Thor, Thor cannot Thor Ragnarok cannot be over. Taxi Thor Ragnarok driver. should not be in the top 100. <laughs> no I'm way. sorry, that is not a hundred greatest movie of all time. Popular movies, sure, we can have that discussion. Oh yeah, absolutely. It's a great movie. It's yeah. super fun. I really enjoy it, but it's not a top 100 greatest film of all time. There's been movies been made for over 110 years. Movies have been being made. We gotta talk about them all, not oh, yeah. just the ones that we've been alive for. Empire Magazine. Anyways, how you like me now? <laughs> Get me all riled up. All right, uh, we let me check the five star reviews. See if we have a new one to read out on the show. I certainly hope so. If not, then y'all gotta get those numbers up for us, everybody. Those are rookie. Those are rookie numbers. <laughs> Let's see. Hold on. Give me one moment. One moment. I'm pulling up our twelve Apple hours data. Our Apple podcast reviews. Boom, 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 boom. Let's see. We have. Where are the reviews? Well, let me access them. Write a review. Hold on. You're going to write your own review? <laughs> <laughs> this is the best ever. <laughs> Greatest show of all time. Raiders of the Lost podcast. James is really funny. Anthony's not Super Why handsome. can't I access the reviews? Hold on. Hold on. Let me. I got them. I got them. Can you see the written reviews? I can't access them. This is really weird. See reviews. Did they change up the... Um, no, actually, I can't see any reviews. They are hiding the written reviews on Apple Podcasts. That is so odd. Oh, yeah, I can't see any. Usually, it's right there at the bottom of the page. It has a... Yeah, it will have, like, it'll have the, like the, the most it'll, recent. It'll have, like, yeah, most recent and top five. Um, that's odd. Sorry, we can't read a, a five-star review right now, but if you leave one, that'd be great. <laughs> Still. <laughs> Shit. Yeah, that's weird. So weird! The fuck, Apple? Yeah, that's nowhere. It's nowhere. All right, well, let's get to our streaming recommendations. Since we're on horror and since we're talking about a great movie from the past, I am going to recommend The Exorcist, which is on Max, the one for watch to watch for horror. It's Max. I also have a Max movie. Uh, it, James Gandolfini's death was 10 years ago yesterday, and so I have a suggestion for a Gandolfini movie you maybe have not seen called The Drop with Tom Hardy, Numi Rapace. And a puppy. And a little puppy. It's really good. <laughs> it's really good. good. Yeah. I think you said Gandalfini. I said Gandalf. 
I did say Gandalf Whitney. <laughs> you did? <laughs> <laughs> we have a pair of specs. <laughs> Sorry. Sorry. Sorry, James. James. Sorry, James. We love James Gandalf Whitney. Legend. He's a patron. <laughs> oh, my God. All right, let's get back into the episode of The Thing. I got to say, thing. this movie has the craziest opening act of a movie, man. It's fucking awesome. Not only do we have it open with a flying saucer heading for Earth and landing there, we have an Antarctic winter in 1982. We have a dog getting chased by a helicopter with guys shooting at it with like, rifles. Like, what the hell? We have Norwegians with guns shooting other humans by accident. We have grenades. We have a headshot. It's insane. What a crazy opening five minutes, let alone act. Zero exposition. Zero. It's great. It's just unfolding before our eyes, which makes it so great. You want to know what the Norwegians said? What did they say? I have a translation of them. Oh, I'd love to. Love so to they said, get the hell out of there. That's not a dog. It's some sort of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. <laughs> so, so the guy screams at them. They, they could have calmed down a little bit. Like, yeah, he was like, how are you going to expect them to trust you when you have a fucking gun firing at them? shooting yeah. them. <laughs> but I understand the panic and the desperation. Yeah. Yeah. Again, and, and like, they don't want it to spread to those other guys immediately because they, they've, they've already seen how quickly it can happen. But I, I just love the mystery. And movies like this, which respect the audience and don't spell everything out for you and don't explain everything. It's just wonderful because, I mean, it's so many times you've seen a movie similar to this and you, like, learn everything about the thing and what it's doing here. And there could, there's probably there would probably be a scene where the thing actually, like, reveals its, its history. You don't need any of that. We just need to know what's happening immediately in the moment. And that's what makes the movie so special. And the characters. Everyone's unique in their own way. They have great personalities. There's lots of great little humor and jokes here and there as well as great character detail. I think that McCready is one of Kurt Russell's best characters. Now, while discussing the character of McCready, John Carpenter and Kurt Russell discussed having McCready be a former Vietnam War helicopter pilot, which was in, and he was involved in some sort of tragedy and since felt disgraced by his service. Because of this, McCready suffers from PTSD, alcoholism, and severe insomnia. This backstory ultimately did not make it into the finished film, though it explains why McCready was awake to hear the dogs whining and why he isn't phased by the grotesque violence happening in the film. It also adds deeper context to the line, I'm a real light sleeper, child. Nick Nolte <laughs> turned down the role of McCready, as did Jeff Bridges, Bill Lancaster, who wrote the script, had Harrison Ford and Clint Eastwood in mind for the lead role. Both men were considered. On top of this, a relatively unknown Fred Ward campaigned for the role. But Kurt Russell ended up getting it. Carpenter said one of the main reasons why he chose Kurt, they had worked in the past, but also he said he knew that Kurt Russell was someone who would happily take on the undertaking of such a difficult shoot for being a big star. Um, you know, working in the freezing cold, working under crazy circumstances, and do it without complaints. And he spent a year growing that beard. It's, uh, it's, that The hair and beard of Kurt in this movie is all-time. Top like, beard in here. Yeah, hair. it's great. And I love the character design, especially when he basically escapes the cold after being stuck out there for so long, and he's just got frost all over his bear, beard and hair, and he's got the flare. Oh One of my, my God, favorite shots shot. ever is him holding the flare because he doesn't look human because he's so cold. And also, as the audience watches at this point, we think McCready could be the thing because they found his shirt torn up. Mm -hmm. And so they, everyone thinks he's the thing. We think he's the thing. But this image of him frozen with the frozen beard and hair with the flare, the red light on the blue, it's 
gorgeous shot. It's a great, great shot. It's one of my favorites, too. And he is kind of like a, a reluctant leader. And that background with him of being in the war seems to make a lot of sense because he's the person under all these crazy situations. He's the one who's able to keep his composure better than anyone. He actually maintains a lot of control of himself in situations in these hazardous moments. So he is an excellent leader when push comes to shove. He does have leadership chops for sure. And there is a great rivalry between him and Childs. They kind of seem like two alphas that, you know, one of them wants to be in charge. And even you could argue that there's like a sense of racism where they're saying, all right, who's going to be in charge now? And they don't let Childs be in charge. And McCready takes it in instead. And, they, and, and McCready says... We need someone a little more even-tempered here instead. So I don't know if that's what they're alluding to there, but there's definitely a rival between them that's palpable the whole film. I would say it's it's not racism, but it, there's stuff in the past that happened where Childs has probably shown that he is a bad temper. Mm -hmm. And that's why he can't be trusted to be in charge with the weapons. So the, I think that's what the even-tempered line means. It means we need someone who can control themselves and keep their composure. So I'm guessing... There's a history between Childs and the other members of the station where he has maybe lost control of his emotions multiple yeah. times. But I love the back and forth between – there's just that tension, the whole film between Childs and McCready. Yeah. But then it's relieved at the end of the film when they're both to be chilling. assumed human survivors, <laughs> chilling, taking a sip of that scotch. Yeah. And I, I, I love um, I love so many aspects to the first half of the film. Uh, I love the that first autopsy with the giant – amalgamation of like the thing assimilating and then it's, it was killed so this is the one that they bring back from the norwegian yeah. campsite so in first of all the norwegian campsite scene is terrific again such little exposition the characters are trying to or we're given the same amount of evidence as the characters are in the movie which is great because we're just like side by side with them trying to figure it out with them and so first we get that footage and then they go to the site and they find that body but what I love... No, they didn't get the footage yet. They just went there. Oh, sorry. So they just went there. What I love is that Carpenter didn't do like a reveal of the thing then. What he did was he did a shot of McCready and... Who's he with? Is he with... I think he's with Norris. He's with the doctor. Yeah, he's with Norris. And what he does is he puts the thing in the foreground of the frame out of focus. Just edges of it. And then... The two actors are in focus behind it, and we're just getting a hint of it. Like, we haven't even seen it sh yet, and then we finally get, like, slow reveals of it at the, in the, um in the, what do you call it? Med bay. Med bay, yeah, area where they're doing the autopsy, and then we see all these different shots of it, and then it, what I love, my one of my favorite shots is the slow pan of the camera across the body, the, the, mutated body of the thing and then it ends on the face of a warped face of a man two faces yeah yeah I, that's one of my favorite shots because it, it adds so much fear and you're like what is this thing it's insane and they're like what is it human because there's limbs but also yeah. that's not a human being yeah it's just like a, a bunch of human beings like melted together exactly I, but i love when they go to the norwegian site not only because we're getting a sense of how dangerous it is to live in this kind of climate without the right kind of structures and wardrobe and everything. And even with the right clothing, you'll still freeze to death. But especially because the weather, you know, it's dangerous to fly if there's smoke. Or I mean, if there are clouds in the air because you can't see. There's no White visibility. Out. But then when they get to the Norwegian site, and of course it's burnt down. But just to see what 
a couple hours, it looks like, of this freezing temperature can do to an interior of this building and how it's literally just become the Arctic environment inside there. So it adds not only is the thing an obstacle for this film, but the environment is, as well is a huge obstacle for every character in this film. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And it adds to the isolation, the and, danger. Oh, I'm sorry, and the sliced throat. Where the oh guy, my the God, guy the at the throat. desk with the sliced throat, the, the blood froze as it was pouring out. Yeah, because it, it does get that cold. I mean, I watched this video just the other day where a guy opened a can of Coke in the Arctic and poured it out and it froze as it was pouring. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my God, Did it that's reach cold. the ground? No, it didn't. <laughs> that's crazy. It's crazy. That's how cold it gets. I mean, human beings are not meant to be there. But it makes sense for the thing since it's such a molecular transformative being that um, anything that doesn't destroy molecules is okay, hence the cold and why it can freeze itself and be in thought out 100,000 years later. And what I love about this movie is the first shot is the spaceship, right? Yeah. Landing in Earth. And then you realize when you watch it in the movie again, you're like, wait, that's, this is like 100,000 years ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's how old it was, yeah. like that first shot. Like, is there another movie where there's such a, ch a change in time? Of like a so. hundred thousand years. I don't know. Which I mean, the continents. The there was the continents weren't even like fully formed back then. <laughs> like that's how well, they old, were. Were they? Yeah, yeah. Were, that's, that's, that's millions. Million. That's hundreds of millions. It's like ten years ago. No, that's <laughs> that's like a billion. No, yeah, years that was ago. dumb of me to say. Yeah, Pangaea was a long time ago. Yeah, that was pretty dumb. And he's like, yeah, like ancient Egypt. That was Pangaea, right? <laughs> I Stick not. to movies, bro. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, whenever I watch this movie and I see the spaceship, I'm like, that was like 100,000 years ago. <laughs> <laughs> there, I mean, there, you could argue there were humans 100,000 years ago. That's how. So, well, I mean, long. you can argue that there were ancient civilizations. Yeah. You could. You can make that argument. And you and, can also argue that human beings were actually created by aliens when they came here hundreds, like 100,000 years ago. You could also argue that Pepsi's better than Coke. I mean, it I don't think you could argue that. Yeah, I don't know. I, I don't think anyone could. We should, I've never do taken a the Pepsi challenge. Do a poll. You've never taken a Pepsi challenge? I don't think I've done it. I don't think I've, I don't done think it I've actually done it. Exactly. So who would know? There's no way Pepsi's better than Coke. We should do it later. Okay. Let's do it later. But anyways, back to the thing. I also love, of course, we brought up how Ennio Morricone's score for this film, not only did it get a Razzie, even though it's incredible, but... You know, Quentin Tarantino is such a huge fan of the thing that using the score and the un unused music as well from this film for The Hateful Eight, as well as many of the themes are similar. Like if you listen to the soundtrack for The Thing just on its own, it'll sound so much like The Hateful Eight, like you'll be playing Hateful Eight scenes in your head as well. But he still did enough original music for Hateful Eight to win an Oscar. Yes, exactly. Because he composed new music as well as using a lot of the music that wasn't used for The Thing and some music that was used for The Thing. But also, you got to argue that the use of Quentin Tarantino's flamethrower in Once Upon a Time in oh, Hollywood yeah. for Rick Dalton's an obvious reference to the thing because the flamethrower is this is the most iconic movie with a flamethrower you have I can't think of another one you know probably that's more thing, iconic but now Once Upon a Time in Hollywood is just as important for sure but I mean it's a flamethrower Rick fl it's <laughs> anything we knew about that heat god damn it's hot <laughs> but um the flamethrower in this, in this movie is great you know Childs operates the flamethrower the first time with the dogs in the cage when the mm -hmm. thing just starts transforming this monstrosity of a dog because it was going to try to assimilate all of the dogs as good the thing, plan, which was an excellent plan for sure for the thing because he laid low, acted like a dog. Just cuddle. Let me cuddle with you, human. He could have <laughs> the dogs could have cuddled with all the humans and kill and just assimilate. Exactly, them it would have been super easy. That was actually a really great plan by the thing initially, and then the flamethrower is just so exciting to use. But obviously, every time they use the flamethrower, it seems to escape. But then the flamethrower sequence after the chomp. 
yeah. is excellent. And then where he they burn the head that the head's escaping is like they're with the spider legs. It's like, are you fucking kidding me? Lighting up with that. But every time the flamethrower is busted out, I get so excited. It's everywhere in the second and third Well, I act. mean, the combination and contrast of fire and ice are all over this movie, which is one of my favorite um, visuals. And it's not just the flamethrower, but also like when they light Clark up with the flare in the in the gasoline and he's just burning up to a crisp and then ah! and then also when they they burn the bodies in the in the hole they dig in the snow with the flamethrower so i love the contrast of fire on ice it's just always really cool to see and it's 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 so present in this film and constant you know these clashing of these two elements. Yeah, and there's so much more to this than just being a great alien horror movie. There are solid themes here, specifically, I think, the hubris of humanity, where they know that this thing is not of this earth and it's killing people. It's already killed people, and they think they have control of the situation. The humans inside Outpost Thirty One, and they just have the body of one. Of, I can't remember who's dead under that tarp, and. Windows comes and he looks under the tarp and he's like disgusted by it. And they're like, and Windows is like, why don't we just burn them? That's, we should burn the, every being. Yeah, yeah. We should burn them all up to a crisp and get rid of it. But then the other guy, the guy with the beard, I can't remember his name. Um, he goes, you don't destroy the fine of a century. Like we have to get this back for science. So because of the hubris of humanity, they could have nipped this in the bud pretty early on. And arguably, if this was the only remaining being of the thing at the at the outpost under this tarp because then, then the tarp moves and takes over his body and so the hubris of humanity is at fault for sure here. oh absolutely they should have fucking burned that immediately and curiosity of just opening up the ice and just seeing yeah. what's in there i love the shot when he leaves the room and then the camera stays on the the blanket and the blanket just lifts up a little bit yeah. <laughs> it's awesome as well as i love the shot of the shadow Earlier on in the film, when the dog's at the outpost and it's nighttime and the dog is wandering the halls, it's a great sequence because there's there's like an old 70s song playing. It's awesome. Dog's just moving, traversing through the outpost, looking for somebody to take over. And then the dog sees this door open of a room. All we see is the shadow of a figure sitting down. We don't know who it is. And John Carpenter purposely didn't have any of the actors stand in. There's just a, another person as a stand-in to create the shadow of this being to displace suspicion of anyone who could potentially make out who the character is in that room with the shadow. It's definitely Palmer, though. It could. Yeah. When you watch it again, it's clearly Palmer's shadow. No, they literally didn't have the actor. They didn't? No, I, I just said that he, John Carpenter purposely did not have any of the actors sit in there. Oh, for me, when I look at that shadow, it looks just like Palmer. And that's just your interpretation, but he purposely yeah. didn't use an actor. He just had a stand-in. I guess so, Probably yeah. like a PA, like, hey, go sit over there while we get the shot. Because he didn't want the audience to assume they could figure out who it was. Do you remember the um, South Park thing episode? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where uh, they did the... Chopper Keeper? No, 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 no. Um, they did... That's more of like a Terminator one. Uh -huh. They did a uh, blood test for lice. Oh, yeah. So <laughs> Cartman... Here's, here, look at it. See, see Cartman... This is amazing. Oh, I forgot about so, that. So they're trying to figure out who has lice amongst the boys. And so Cartman takes all their blood samples and even wears like a coat like McCree. Or <laughs> <laughs> she gave him a beard. But it's, it's exactly like the movie with the, the, the little discs of blood and the red copper wire and the little flamethrower. Uh, and he, it, it, I remember seeing that scene as a kid, um, knowing it was a thing reference and loved it. 
Yeah, that was such a brilliant um, reference by South Park. I love the blood test. Scene. The blood it's, test scene's iconic. Blood is is really important in this movie because there there are multiple instances where it's used, and I think the blood bag sabotage is a very eerie sequence for the audience. The first time you watch this, you're like, "Who sabotaged the blood?" Because this is also such a great who done it at the same time. It's Clue with an alien, basically, in a lot <laughs> of ways. And so then we, after McCready, uh, basically gets control of the situation after he escapes the freezing cold they all still think he's the thing but he comes up with the idea of the blood of a blood test and using heat to see if there's going to be a reaction to the blood and this scene is so well written such great direction where McCree's in charge because he he threatened everybody with the the dynamite mm-hmm. with the flare he gets his own uh flamethrower pack he's in control and so he and he also shoots Nichols in the head uh the dog guy in the head who was actually a human at the time. Yeah. And I love that how makes you like, a murderer. Makes you a murderer. But he trusts Windows. Yes. So he has the Windows be his assistant because he trusts. Well, he, well, he kind of trusts him. He still has yeah. him tested. Yeah, he still has him tested. He's yeah. the first one to get his blood tested. He doesn't you're trust. Right. Yeah. McCready doesn't yeah. trust anybody. You're right. You're right. You're right. And yeah. so it's a really great plan because McCready's a smart guy. He's clearly intelligent. And I think that Carpenter wanted to show this early in the film where he's playing his chess simulator. You know, I think that's a sign that he's a great strategist. He's intelligent. He even beats this computer. He doesn't beat it. Well, he makes fun of the computer, doesn't he? No, see, he thinks he has it. Okay. And then it checkmates him. He's like, cheating, bitch. Oh, yeah. Maybe he's not that smart. Because it set him up for what he thought. It, it, it fooled him. It tricked him into get, getting into its trap. Good point. Good point. So maybe he's figured out. Well, he strategizes. He's, yeah, I mean, he's, yeah, he's, he's, he's a smart guy. He's smart. <laughs> but this plan is great where he basically ties everybody up to a bench and he draws blood from each of them with windows and then he heats up a little coil, a little copper coil, and then we'll touch the blood to it. But the suspense is so drawn out and built so well by John Carpenter here because he has four negative tests in a row. Who's the thing going to be? And then everyone's is it even working? And then the audience, yeah. everyone's like, this is bullshit. This isn't going to work at all until he pushes it on the fifth one and it pops up. But first, they, they, they brilliantly make it seem like it's impossible for the th- the fifth one Palmer's to be the thing because he's talking to the other guy, I think Bennings, and he's like, that's why I'm saving you for last. <laughs> so we all like, oh, it's definitely that guy. But then, oh, shit, it's this guy. Yeah, exactly, yeah. <laughs> it's genius. And then the tension between him and Childs, the rivalry is there because McCready wants it to be Childs yeah. so bad. They just don't like each other. And even when he sticks the coil in the blood, he's like rubbing. He's like, god damn it. It's come, not on, come on, <laughs> just like, give me a little more time. <laughs> but it's so funny because everyone hates McCready while he's doing it. But then when their uh, their blood tests negative, they're like, "Oh, give me a flamethrower too." And then, yeah. But once McCready trusts you and people trust each other, then you're in because you're in the they club. They really realize that any one of us can be the thing, especially anyone who's been alone. And then, obviously, one of the scariest scenes ever is the scene where Palmer starts just like shaking and just like convulsing, and then the guys are strapped next to him. They're like, "Get us the fuck out of here!" <laughs> it's horrifying. <laughs> but this action scene is insane because then. Um, when Palmer escapes and he jumps on the ceiling and then uh, Windows has the other flamethrower, but he freezes out of fear and then Palmer's head opens up into this giant fanged mouth and just fucking bites his head and lifts him up in the air and starts just like shaking him around. 
Oh my god, I watched it last night. I was still like, ah, it's crazy. <laughs> this is crazy. <laughs> I can't believe that movie, man. It's pretty incredible. I, I love it so much. And then they burn it to a crisp, and then they have to continue the blood test. Yeah. <laughs> oh my god. I love this movie, man. And yeah. then the, the, it just gets better and better. The suspension, suspense and tension and mystery is built even more, especially when Blair escapes, but also... Blair with the noose, you know he's you know he's the thing at this point. We know after you've seen the movie, but that's just a great like tactic that he's probably using to try to get out of the 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 tool shit he's been trapped yeah, inside yeah, of. You know yeah. he's like the noose is like probably the thing's idea of like trying to get them to lure him out. If they think he's dead, he'll take they'll take him out his body out. Possibly, yeah. yeah. But yeah, this is when the plot turns to them trying to stop the thing from what it's doing. This is where they discover the the spaceship under construction. In the tunnel. I mean, I, I just, I'm always so curious because I love how Carpenter only shows the thing when it's interacting with humans. And that's what adds so much great mystery to the film. As opposed to, you don't need to show the thing building the ship. You, you don't need to show it doing things on its own. Um, that would kind of take a. That would definitely take away from the film. Because you can argue that while it's probably building that ship down there, it was like the most complex yeah, being ever yeah. probably had like a hundred hands yeah I, that's what i think when i imagine it because that's it's always fun to just be able to imagine it as an audience member and a fan to be like when it was building its ship like what was it like it must have been so many pieces that it was just like able to do it so quickly and also how it dug the tunnel so quickly like yeah. i wonder what kind of shape it took to dig that tunnel so immediately because it really did all that in a matter of hours so i'm always so curious about like what other shapes it took that we never even saw. And that's what adds so much greatness to the film that makes you really think about the film. Yeah, and the complexity and the mystery of what it could do and what it actually... We've never even seen, like, the limits of what its possibilities are, which is so fascinating. And even in the end, when we see its big reveal of the monstrosity it becomes is so much fun, too. And it's got a great plan because the thing realizes that, all right, um, the transportation is destroyed, communications are destroyed... And my ship is destroyed. What's the only way for me to ensure that I survive as a being and can uh, then spread and take over this whole planet and then escape this planet and go somewhere else is I need to destroy this place in terms of shutting down the generator and freezing this mm -hmm. whole campsite up. And I'll freeze the humans and I'll freeze and then... At some point, I'm going to get thawed up. Those boneheads are going to have a rescue party and for me. It's going to be great. And then someone's going to come at some point, whether it's a year or 100 years or 1,000 years, and thaw me out, and then I'll be going. So I'm going to go back to sleep. I'm going to freeze, and that's how I'm going to win in this situation. Let's heat things up a bit. <laughs> yeah, McCready gets the idea. we got to burn this whole thing down and bring the entire place down. The explosion's great. A real explosion they fucking just demolished that fucking station. It's incredible. And it was the explosion was so big. If you watch closely, the pan, the camera actually has to tilt up a little bit to catch the cloud <laughs> because they weren't expecting it to be that big. When they actually set up the, the detonations and the explosives, the crew was worried that it wouldn't be enough. And so they had a backup plan of using visual effects in post-production to make the explosion look bigger. But... Clearly, they, it was bigger than they were even expecting. I love the uh, generator room sequence, too, especially because there's only a few survivors left. We have McCready, we have Nalls, and some, who was the other one? I can't remember. And one of them gets taken away, obviously, by the thing quickly. And Nalls, he gets killed as well. Off screen, yeah. And then we just have McCready by himself with the dynamite. He knows the thing's coming. He lights that stick oh, of dynamite yeah. waiting for it, and it just comes through the floor. 
it sucks. Up I love the, the floor just jumping like for, it, as it's just like a like it's like a sandworm. Under yeah, the, like a tentacle yeah. just like sucks up the the detonator. And it's great. It's a great reveal. It's terrifying, but McCready throws that that dynamite at it and just says, "Go fuck yourself or something." Yeah, fuck you too. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, he escapes. But then again, the great ending, McCready and Childs, because Childs. The last time we saw Childs is when McCready and Knowles, I think, went to go see Blair and realized that he was gone. And he told Childs because Childs blood tested negative as well. If Blair shows up. Not with us, torch him. Mm-hmm. And then while they were at Blair's uh, tool shed, and he they realized he was gone, they look back, and Childs runs into the storm. No one knew, knew why. That was the last time they saw Childs, until this moment. He comes yeah. back, and McCree's like, where have you been? He's like, oh, I, thought I saw Blair running in the storm, so I went after him, and I lost him. Mm-hmm. Sure you it's did. the last time we saw him. And so the Blair monster was actually supposed to be uh, more heavily used in the climax of more of an action scene, but they couldn't get the technology to really make it look believable. So that's why they made it such a quick action scene because they couldn't pull it off. It looks fine. And it also Nulls, they actually filmed the scene where Nulls gets killed by the thing, um, but it was they used stop motion um, and some animatronics, and it didn't look good. And they even did some test screenings, and audiences laughed at that scene. So they ended up cutting it out, which I think works better. Because we don't need to see Nulls die. We just when he leaves and he doesn't come back, it's like, yeah, the thing got him. There's a little stop motion in this movie with the thing, like when it pulls the dynamite in the that's stop the motion. Yeah, that's yeah. stop motion for sure. It it's like you can tell, and it's a good thing they only used a little bit of it yeah. here and there because if they did more of that, it might not have worked. It works just in that. And most notably, they use a lot of reverse footage. Uh, I would say mostly in the dog pen scene with the tentacles and stuff. Like that's all just reverse footage that they they. Uh, put in forward and that's why the tentacles realistically in real life they were pulling the tentacles away but then when they reverse the footage it looks like the tentacles are shooting out you know what i mean i wonder what the metal fence was made out of because i love it looked like twigs yeah or something because the dog's tearing it apart because they're trying to escape i wonder if it was like a food or something it was something that's that was clearly i mean when the first times you see this movie that used to always like get like under my skin and, and i'll be like oh it's tearing through the fence but then when you watch on repeat viewings that's one of the effects where you when you've seen it enough you can see that it's clearly like not very solid at all and some kind of very soft material yeah it just says i just googled it real quick it just says some edible substance mm-hmm. I, I don't know if it what it was no oh, a snack it was a snack it was just jerky <laughs> <laughs> it probably was jerky it could have been yeah the dog's like oh delicious but that's just a great shot of how terrified these dogs are they're trying yeah. they're biting through the fence yeah and I, cause I, and I love the performance of the dog because the thing dog, when it walks into the pen, it just like calmly walks in. It's just like sits down. It's like, oh, yeah, here we go. Great actor. Nominee. Excellent. Best pick, Best actor. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, yeah, there's so many things in this film. It's, it's just so fucking goddamn good. It's just a perfect movie. And I'm, I'm, it's smart that no one's ever remade it, but still, there was a mistake to do the prequel. It's basically a remake. But the, I mean, yeah, yeah, it's basically a remake, even with the casting. Because um, I would say that, like I've said in bo- a few times, that one of the strengths, one of the greatest strengths of the film is its mystery, and the mystery of the Norwegian station is something that we don't need to see. Just knowing about the aftermath is enough and we are and when you watch this movie you're like yeah they went through probably the same fucking thing yeah that's the mystery yeah. it's you realize 
when they blow up Outpost 31, that's exactly what the Norwegians did. They went yeah. through the exact same thing. Yeah. They had the same conclusion. The only way to do this is to blow it up mm-hmm. and burn it to the ground. Yeah. Burn it to a crisp. That's why it's great. It's just a cycle. A vicious cycle. And then it's going to happen to Outpost 32, maybe. I would love to see a sequel with, with Kurt Russell back and Keith David back. I think that would be awesome. I wonder how they would do it. Maybe it'd be like a aliens kind of thing, like he's going back to destroy it to help. That's them. what I would. Yeah, yeah. and then it's like a bunch of things. Then it's like hundreds of things. I don't know. I don't <laughs> no, know. No, no. How would, I'm sure Carpenter's been thinking about it for a long time. You know, I'm sure he's got some ideas. I'm sure it'd be cool. I would say, yeah. I mean, there would be. I mean, if if you're gonna do a sequel, it should be another isolate. I keep it small in scope. Again, yeah. Don't make it bigger in scope. Yeah, that would and, be a mistake. And the thing with uh, we keep bringing this up with like Ridley Scott doing a sequel to Gladiator, John Carpenter potentially doing a sequel to The Thing. Should you do sequels to masterpieces and such loved movies? I think my I've changed so much my opinion on this the last few years. I am all for it now, especially if it's the original filmmaker making a sequel to their movie. You know, I'm I'm for I think Denis. I'm only for well, actually no, because Denis, Denis did with a great Blade Runner 2049. I think that that I think was a movie that was important for this to be like a laxed opinion for me. Like, you know what? It can be done. And what are you gonna do? About you're gonna tell Ridley Scott not to make a movie that he wants to make. You're gonna tell John Carpenter to not make it to not make a sequel to the thing. You're not gonna see it. Of course, I'm gonna fucking see it, and I will be ecstatic about it. And I can't wait. I hope. I honestly, I really do hope it happens. And that's just the way it is now. You know. The, these filmmakers are great filmmakers. They want to do it again. Let's let's go. If Kurt's there, I'll be there for I'll, sure. Like even if Scorsese's like, I want to make a sequel to Taxi Driver, even though he never would. I don't know. <laughs> Travis Pickles definitely. There's no dead. way Travis Pickles still alive. Yeah, definitely dead. <laughs> like you can't have De Niro. He back. died doing something. But stupid. you know what I mean. Yeah. I think if the original filmmaker has an idea and they still want to express something and do something artistic, I think go, so too. Go for it. Why not? I even I like Prometheus. Yeah, I like Prometheus, Prometheus too. Prometheus is a cool movie. I enjoy it. That's that's how I feel. These days, whatever. Let's go. Yeah, fuck it. Extra, fuck it. E.T. Extraterrestrial 2 comes back. Let's go. I'm not sure we need a sequel to E.T. though. <laughs> I don't think we need that. Elliot. I'm Elliot. back. <laughs> <laughs> Elliot's like 60. Like, okay. Hey, E.T. Hey, man. Oh, not you again. <laughs> just kidding. They love each other. All right. You got anything else on the thing? Nothing. I just love it, man. Nothing. I, I think we it. said everything I we wanted it. to say. Um, we appreciate you all listening to this episode on one of the best horror movies of all time, The Thing. Please become a patron today at patreon.com slash Raiders of the Lost Podcast. Leave those five-star reviews and take care, everyone. See you next time. This episode was executive produced by our chosen one patrons, Cody Moen, Andrew Hagen, Becca Keene, Benjamin Cook, Calvin Murphy Griggs, Nicholas Martin, Darian Singleton, Tyler McFly, Andrew Hagen, our Chosen One patrons, are our biggest supporters. Thank you so much. Raiders of the Lost podcast is a Mirror Image production. Sound mixing done by Jacob Kosler. Opening music by Chase Jackson.